Okay, dear saints, we are on message four, the last message of this wonderful conference, I feel. And again, I'm repeating myself in all the messages, but I will just say very briefly, we are talking about Noah, Daniel, and Job as patterns of living an overcoming life to fulfill and accomplish God's eternal economy. Now, the reason we use these three persons again is they are mentioned in Ezekiel 14 uh, together. And uh, the context of their being mentioned by God is that God is going to judge Jerusalem for their terrible idolatry and apostasy. And God kind of makes a declaration in which he says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were among you, they would only save themselves by their own righteousness, and no one else would be saved. So God's, God was uh, very, to say the least, very unhappy with his chosen people who had totally uh, abandoned him for idols and left the straight way of, of his, uh, his economy in the Old Testament to be in, an, in, a, in a situation of total apostasy. So when, when we look at Noah, Daniel, and Job, we have to look at them through the glasses again of God's economy. And what we see is that, what we saw is that Noah points to God the Father and the Father's faithfulness to keep his word and keep his covenant with his people. And Daniel points to Christ the Son as the centrality and universality of God's move on the earth. We could see this in the latter half of the book of Daniel. Then the book of Job points to God the Spirit in his transforming work to make us the, exactly the same as God in life and nature but not in the Godhead for the building up of the body of Christ, which is the preparation of the bride of Christ to cause us to become in full the new Jerusalem as his beautiful bride to bring him back in his second coming for our marriage to him, our, our com the completion of our marriage union with him in which we are completely united, mingled, and incorporated with him to be the new Jerusalem. Okay, now in this fourth message, we want to concentrate on Job, which we, which, we, which we did in our recent training. We had a crystallization study of the book of Job. And actually, this message four is, is actually one of the messages from that crystallization study but it is such a deep, profound, and wonderful message. I believe that all of you will see something new and fresh. I know when I got back into it, I saw some, some new things and some fresh things from this particular word. All right, now let's look at the title. Message four, the title of it is God's Intention with Job. God's intention with Job. 
Roman number one tells us exactly what God's intention with Job was. It says God's intention with Job was for him to become a person who lived in the heavenly vision and reality of God's economy. And saints, again, we just need to pray short prayers over these points. And we need to pray, for instance, with this, we need to pray, Lord, make me a person. Cause me, even as the law of the spirit of life in me, cause me to become a person who lives in the heavenly vision of your eternal economy and who lives in the reality of your economy. You know, saints, again, to see the heavenly vision of God's eternal economy is to see the vision of eternity, to live in the reality of God's eternal economy, is to live the life of eternity, then to labor together with Christ to dispense him into people and into God's chosen people for their regeneration, their sanctification, their renewing, their transformation, their confirmation, and ultimately their glorification is to do the work of eternity. So we want to see the vision of eternity, we want to live the life of eternity, and we want to do the work of eternity. Now let's look at A, and we'll see something about Job's experience. A says, Job's experience was a step taken by God in his divine economy. Now I'll just stop there, saints. This is a wonderful uh, realization and vision that you can go to theological libraries all over the world, and none of the books will tell you this that Job's experience was an actual step taken by God and his divine economy. For what reason? It goes on, it says, to carry out the consuming and stripping of the contented Job in order to tear Job down, that God might have a way to rebuild him with God himself and usher him into a deeper seeking after God so that he might gain God instead of his blessings and his attainments in his perfection and integrity. So what God wanted to do in his economy with Job was he wanted to, to consume the contented Job, just like 2 Corinthians 4, 16 tells us it says that, uh, that we don't lose heart even though our outer man is being consumed. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. So in order for Job to live in the reality of the divine economy, his outer man had to be consumed. So what we see in Job is through all the sufferings and trials that he passed through, we see the consuming of this, of this, I like this phrase, of the contented Job. Job, at this point, he was contented with where he was in his experience. According to his wrong realization, 
he thought he was righteous. Actually, he was self-righteous. The only righteousness in this universe is Christ himself. But Job was self-righteous. Job was contented with uh, where he was in relation to God, not realizing that the value that a person has before God is related to how much God, how much of God that person has gained. So our value in God's sight has everything to do with how much God we've gained in our subjective experience. Now notice uh, Roman numeral one uses this term, the contented Job. Uh, saints, I was looking at the elders training series again, and in book three there of, of the elders training, there is a chapter uh, that's entitled, it's entitled something like this, not becoming contented, not becoming contented. We should never be contented with where we, where we are in our experience of God's economy and in our becoming a vital, real, living constituent of the bride of Christ to bring Christ back. We cannot be contented. You look at the book of Philippians, at that time Paul had been a born-again believer for over, at least over 20 years, he was the exact antithesis and opposite of a contented Christian. He said he counted all things as refuse, that he might gain Christ. Of course, to gain Christ is to gain God. Christ is God, so to gain Christ is to gain God. So he counted everything in his past as refuse so that he could gain Christ, so that he could be found in Christ. And also, if you look in Philippians 3, Paul said that Christ laid hold of him. And in the original language, for Christ to lay hold of Paul means that he seized Paul. He grasped Paul. He took hold of Paul. For what reason? He, Paul said this, he said that he was laid hold of by Christ so that he could lay hold of Christ. So Christ seized Paul so that Paul might seize him. So again, this is wonderful, saints. Paul, Christ laid hold of us so that we might lay hold of him. And so what Paul was doing, again, this is from Philippians 3, he said, uh, he said at one point, I like this, he said, this one thing I do, this one thing I do. I believe this is in, in verse 13. Actually, according to the original language, it doesn't say this one thing I do. It just says one thing. I like that, one thing, Cohen. What was the one thing with Paul? The one thing was this, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I pursue toward the goal for the prize 
to which God in Christ has called me upward. So saints, we always need to take care of this one thing, forgetting the things which are behind. That includes everything that you heard yesterday, or uh, maybe you had glorious experiences in the past when you first came into the church life, and that's wonderful. That's part of your golden history. I have a golden history by the Lord's mercy, uh, and that means something in God's sight. But even with that, if we are going to have new, fresh experiences of Christ, we have to forget even our past experiences of Christ. We have to forget the things which are behind and stretch forward. Listen to this. Stretch forward to the vast, unexplored territory of Christ that's before us. We have to stretch forward. There's so much territory of Christ in our spirit that is unexplored by us. And we need to explore that territory of Christ and gain that territory. And so we pursue toward the goal. Again, the goal is the fullest enjoyment and gaining of Christ so that we can gain the prize in the next stage of the millennial kingdom, which is the uttermost enjoyment of Christ for a thousand years. So in A, this is taking place with us too. God is using our environment of trials, pressures, sufferings, all kind of things. All kind, in Romans 8, 28, uh, Paul says, all things work together for good. Well, those all things refer to all circumstances, all persons, all situations, all kinds of trials, all kinds of sufferings, to do what? To tear down every aspect of our natural being so that he might rebuild us, restructure us, rebuild us with God himself in his divine trinity. You know, the triune God embodied in Christ and realized as a spirit he wants to remodel us. To remodel anything, you have to tear down some things. Well, every aspect of our natural man needs to be torn down, needs to be consumed, so that he can rebuild us with himself in his divine trinity, and at the same time, usher us into a deeper seeking after God so that we might truly gain God. Saints, we need to pray, Lord, usher me into a deeper seeking after God so that I may gain more of God. Now, all these verses talk to us about this. In Philippians 3, we, we mention a number of these points. I would just mention the first three words of Philippians 3.10, Paul says to know him, to know him. When Paul says to know him in this verse, he's talking about knowing Christ experientially and subjectively. Paul's life was a quest to know Christ. He 
He was converted to Christ. He saw a vision of Christ in Acts 9, but he wanted to know the very Christ whom he saw initially in Acts 9 uh, through his conversion experience. So Paul did not stop seeking after God, seeking after Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says something marvelous. He says, things which eye has not seen, which ear has not heard, things which have not come up in man's heart, things which God has prepared for those who love him. So we need to be, we need to pray, Lord, I want to be one of your lovers. Infuse me with yourself as love so that I can love you with the very love with which you've infused me, with, with which you've infused me. In other words, I've been infused with you as love, Lord. I want to love you with that very love. And when we love him in this way to the uttermost, then we enjoy all of his riches that, uh, you know, they can't be described. They're indescribable. Now, um, beginning with these references in First Chronicles, I have a number of references here concerning seeking God, seeking God. Like in First Chronicles 16, 10 and 11, it says, let the heart of those who seek Jehovah rejoice. Then it says, seek Jehovah and his strength Seek his face continually. And when we say seek his face, what we're talking about is seeking his presence. His presence is his actual, living, real person. We want to seek him, we want to seek his strength, and we want to seek his face continually. Now, in 1 Chronicles 22, 19, David said something to Solomon in this verse. And he says this to Solomon. He says, Solomon, he says, I want you to set your heart and set your soul to seek after Jehovah your God and rise up to build the temple, to build the sanctuary of Jehovah God. But the first charge of David to Solomon was Solomon, you need to set your heart and set your soul to seek after Jehovah your God. Saints, we need to set our soul, set our heart, our mind, emotion, will, and conscience, conscience to seek after God so that we can gain more of God. Now, now I want you to notice this. In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, this speaks about King Rehoboam. Rehoboam, at this time, uh, in this portion of, of God's word, what we see is that the kingdom of Israel was divided. And we can tell the whole story. I won't tell the whole story. But there was Jeroboam. Uh, ten tribes went with Jeroboam. Two tribes went with Rehoboam. But Rehoboam, here's what it says about Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles 12, 14. 
It says he did what was evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek Jehovah. Saints, if we, are, if we do not seek the Lord, if we do not seek him, it is predictable that we will do what is evil in his sight. Saints, every day is a day for us to seek Christ, to seek the Lord, to seek God, to gain more of God. Now I've got 2 Chronicles 26, 3 through 5 on here. This talks about King Uzziah. And uh, in verse 5, it says concerning Uzziah, it says he set himself to seek after God. Now listen to what it says. I'll, I'll read the end of this verse. It says this, as long as he sought after Jehovah, God caused him to prosper. Saints, as long as we seek Christ, as long as we seek after God, God will cause us to prosper. This does not refer to mere material prosperity. Prosperity. This refers to us prospering in the divine life. Prosperity in the Bible is our prosperity is when we gain more of God, is when we gain more of Christ, is when we prosper in the divine life, which is Christ himself. This is why we need to give ourselves to seek after God. As long as we seek after God, we will prosper with the unsearchable riches of Christ and with Christ as life and with Christ's presence. Well, in 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 3, these verses talk about Josiah. Josiah was probably the most wonderful king in the Old Testament. Uh, these verses tell us that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign as king in Jerusalem. And it says he did what was right in the eyes of Jehovah. He walked in the ways of David, his father. He didn't turn to the right or turn, or turn to the left. And it says in the eighth year of his reign, that means he's 16 years old. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, that means while he, when he was 16, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And because he began to seek after the God of David, his father, when he was 16 years old, what happened was he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places and of all the idols and of all the molten images in the land. He especially uh, purged the temple of all the idols there, he began to uh, charge workmen, certain workmen, to rebuild the temple according to its original specifications. And they had to clear away a lot of rubble, R-U-B-B-L-E, because the temple had been torn down even in certain places. Well, what happened in Josiah's reign is that uh, one of the one of the scribes or or uh, I can't rem remember which there were 
two people that were with Josiah that were that were interpreters of God's word. But you have to realize at this time, God's written word, God's written word to the Jewish people was his law, was his law. That was his word to them. Well, his written word, they the the, the situation had degraded to such an extent that they did not have the written word of God. But you know, as the rubble was being cleared away from the torn down parts of the temple, uh, you, you can look at this in 2 Chronicles 34, they found the book of the law. And one of these faithful people went to Josiah and said to Josiah, I don't have the verse here, but you can look at this, these chapters and see it. He said to Josiah, I like this. He said, I have found the book. I have found the book of the law in the house of Jehovah. Saints, you know what, you know what happened? That faithful, I'll call him a brother, that faithful brother read from that book to Josiah. When Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his garments. He realized that, my goodness, this is God's word to us. Since this is God's word to us, and we've conducted ourselves in such an, a way of apostasy and idolatry, we are in big trouble with God. We have disobeyed God to the uttermost. So um, Josiah was very much convicted by that. We realized that in the history of the church, the, the church degraded to such an extent that there was no actual written word of God. The only ones that could read the word of God were the so-called priests in the Catholic, uh, Catholic and Catholicism because they knew Latin, they knew Greek, and they knew Hebrew, so they could read from those languages. If you didn't know Latin, you didn't know Greek, you didn't know Hebrew, you weren't in, in the system of Catholicism, you had no way to read the Bible. But thank the Lord, the Lord raised up people who at the cost of their lives translated the Bible. And, I, you know, Luther translated the Bible into German. You have Wycliffe, you have Tyndale, people like them, they translated the Bible into English. And they did this at the cost of their lives, brothers and sisters, so that we could even hold this Bible in our hands today. So it was a, that was a great thing. Now, the Bible is in so many languages that everyone, nearly everyone on earth can read the Bible, can read the Bible. I, I hope that everyone on earth can read the Bible. If, they, if there is a segment that can't read the Bible, we need to make sure that it is translated into their language. You know, there are, of course, uh, people, uh, tribal people in the Amazon, in Central America, 
and actually missionaries have gone there to translate the Bible into their language. But saints, we have the book. That's what the Bible means, the book. Well, Josiah wanted to do everything according to the book. As a result, there was a big revival in Jerusalem. But after Josiah's reign was over, that, that shortly ended that revival and God had to come in and judge the situation. Now, I've got these verses from Psalms here. Uh, Psalm 24.6 talks about, this is the generation of those who seek him, those who seek your face, God's face. And then in Psalm 27.4, I love this verse. It says, one thing I have asked from Jehovah, that do I seek. What does the psalmist seek? He seeks to dwell in Jehovah all the days of my life. To do what? To behold the beauty of Jehovah and to inquire in his temple. So saints, firstly, the psalmist, he wants to dwell in the house of Jehovah all the days of his life. Saints, we want to dwell in the house of God all the days of our life. What is the house of God with God's New Testament, with the glasses of God's New Testament economy on? We can see that our spirit is the house of God. According to Ephesians 2.22, it says God's habitation is in our spirit. So the Lord is with our spirit, according to 2 Timothy 4.22, our spirit is the dwelling place of God. Not only that, we can see that Christ is the habitation of God. He is the sanctuary of God. He is the house of God, uh, because in John 1.14 and John 2.22, we can see that Christ is the reality of the tabernacle of God. He is the reality of the temple of God. So Christ is the house of God. Our spirit is the house of God. Christ is the house of God. The church is the house of God. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, tells us that the church is the house of the living God. Consummately, we can say the new Jerusalem is the house of God, because on the one hand, in Revelation 21.3, the new Jerusalem is the tabernacle of God for, for God to dwell in. On the other hand, at the end of Revelation 21, it says the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple of the new Jerusalem, meaning the new Jerusalem, which is fully constituted with the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the New Jerusalem is the temple for God's chosen and redeemed people to dwell in. So what we see in the New Jerusalem is we see that God dwells in us. We are God's home for God to dwell in. God dwells in us, and God is our home for us to dwell in. We dwell in God. So the New Jerusalem is the ultimate consummation of the house of God. 
So let me go from the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is the house of God. The church is the house of God. Christ is the house of God. And our spirit is the house of God. Saints, if we exercise our spirit, which is the house of God, we can enjoy Christ as the house of God, we can enjoy the church as the house of God, and we can enjoy the new Jerusalem in its reality as the consummate house of God. Now, um, so, the psalmist wanted to dwell in the house of God. He wanted to dwell, I'll just use these, these two aspects. He wanted to dwell in his spirit. He wanted to dwell in the church all the days of his life. That includes today. The church is the house of the living God. Saints, let's stay in our spirit today. Let's keep ourselves in the church as the house of the living God. Practically, to keep ourselves in the church is to be in the meetings of the church, which includes the meetings of the ministry, which this is a ministry meeting right now. It includes the ministry meetings. Saints, that is the practicality of being in the church as the house of the living God. So when we exercise our spirit, we are in the house of God. When we're in the meetings of the church and in the meetings of the ministry, we are in the house of the living God. And what is our purpose for being in the house of God? It is to behold the beauty of Jehovah, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And to behold the beauty of the Lord, that word behold can also be translated as gaze, G-A-Z-E. We want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. And this means we want to gaze at the loveliness of the Lord, at the pleasantness of the Lord, at the del delightfulness of the Lord, at the sweet attractiveness of the Lord, at the delightful loveliness of the Lord. No one surpasses him in beauty, in loveliness, and in attractiveness. Saints, even right now in this meeting, we came here to behold the beauty of the Lord. So we need to seek his face. That's what Psalm 27, 8 says. The psalmist says, when you say, that means when God says, when you say, God, seek my face. That's a capital M. Seek my face. The psalmist says, to you, God, my heart says, your face, O Jehovah, will I seek. It's almost like the psalmist is pray-reading here. God says to the psalmist, seek my faith. So the psalmist says back to God, my heart says to you, God, your faith, O Jehovah, will I seek. Saints, we need to respond to God's desire for us to seek his face by, by uh, exercising our heart to seek his face. Uh, so uh, I'll just go on here. Psalm 119 verse 2 says we need to seek the Lord with all of our heart, not with some of our heart. In Psalm 119 verse 10, 
The psalmist says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Saints, don't seek the Lord with part of your heart. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Now let's come to B. B says, the one who does not care for God may gain, may gain many things and may seem to prosper. However, the one who cares for God will be restricted by God and even stripped by God of many things. God's intention with his seekers is that they may find everything in him and not be distracted from the absolute enjoyment of himself. Well, saints, where we see this in the first 15 verses of Psalm 73, we see the psalmist struggling because the psalmist, he looks at the ungodly ones. And to him, according to his natural view, these, one, these ones seem to prosper. But according to the psalmist, again, he's looking according to his natural eyesight. He cares for God, but to his natural eyesight, he's not, he's, he's, instead of him being prospered, he's being, he's being restricted by God. He's being stripped by God of many things. So he says this uh, in verse, uh, in the middle of this psalm, he says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They heap up riches. Then he says this. He says, Surely I have purified my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. I have been plagued all day long and chastened every morning. So instead of having holy word for morning revival, the psalmist felt like he was having chastening. Instead of morning revival, he was being chastened every morning. Well, well, that should not be our experience. That should not be our perspective. You know, the psalmist went on to say, he said, if I spoke this way to anyone, I couldn't, he said, I couldn't talk to any of God's people about this. Otherwise, he said to God, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But verse 16 of this psalm is a turning point. It says, when I considered this in order to understand it, it was a troublesome task in my sight. Actually, we can say verse 16 is, is a preparatory verse. Actually, verse 17 itself is the turning point. Verse 17 begins with the word until, until, that's the turning point. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. His whole perspective changed when he went into the sanctuary of God, which is the house of God. And we pointed out that God's sanctuary is in our spirit. God's sanctuary is in the church. So we always need to be people who turn to our spirit and who go to the meetings of the church and the meetings of the ministry. Saints, when we are in our spirit and when we are in the church, we receive divine revelation 
and we obtain the explanation to all of our problems. So when the psalmist entered into the sanctuary of God, he realized my view of these ones who are wicked was totally off. He said, God, actually, you've set these people in slippery places. You cast them down into ruins. They're made desolate in a moment. Uh, they're utterly consumed by terrors, T-E-R-R-O-R-S. I'll try to just read a few of these verse, verses. He says this, the psalmist says this, when my heart was embittered, and inwardly I was, and inwardly I was pricked. He said, I was brutish, and I knew nothing. I was like a beast before you. But then the psalmist said this, I like this. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me in glory. Now, when the psalmist got into the sanctuary of God, when he turned to his spirit, when he came to the church meetings, which includes the meetings of the ministry, he said this. He says, whom do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, there is nothing I desire on earth. We should be able to say that right now. Whom do we have in heaven but the Lord? And there is nothing that we desire on earth besides him. So uh, the psalmist ends in Psalm 73 by saying this. He says, as for me, drawing near to God is good for me, and I have made the Lord Jehovah my refuge. So the whole psalm turns when he enters into the sanctuary of God, which indicates his spirit, and which indicates the meetings of the church with the meetings of the ministry. Now let's come to see God's purpose in dealing with his holy people is that they would be emptied of everything and receive only God as their gain. The desire of God's heart is that we would gain him in full as life, as the life supply, and as everything to our being. Now, I won't read these verses, but you can read them later, and you will see very clearly that these verses substantiate uh, the point that I just read to you. Now we'll come to D. In order to live in the reality of God's economy with his divine dispensing, we need God to build himself into our intrinsic constitution so that our entire being will be reconstituted with Christ. One says, as unveiled in Paul's epistles, God's purpose in dealing with us is to strip us of all things and to consume us so that we may gain God more and more. So in these verses, Paul says, we do not lose heart. That's how he begins verse 16. We don't lose heart because even though our outer man is decaying, is being consumed, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Saints, 
even though we might be becoming older outwardly, we're becoming younger inwardly, younger inwardly. We're being renewed day by day. And our affliction, according to these verses, is a momentary lightness of affliction that works out for us more and more surpassingly an eternal weight of glory. So, uh, momentary is versus eternal, lightness is versus weight, and affliction is versus glory. So we might have a momentary lightness of affliction, but what God is working into us is he's working himself into our being as an eternal weight of glory. Now we'll come to two. Two says the building up of the church is by Christ making his home in our hearts. That is by his building himself into us, making our heart our intrinsic constitution, his home. Saints, I hope that you build this up in your daily life as a habit, that you pray uh, Ephesians 3, 16 uh, on a daily basis. Ask the Father, say, Father, according to the riches of your glory, strengthen me with power through your spirit into the inner man, so that Christ himself can make his home in my heart through faith. We are just praying God's word back to him. He will say amen to that prayer, and he will carry it out. It's good to pray that prayer every day. Now let's come to E. E says, in Christ, God was constituted into man. Man was constituted into God. And God and man were mingled together to be one entity, the God-man. This implies that God's intention in his economy is to make himself man in order to make man God in life and in nature, but not in the Godhead. Now, again, we've got lots of verses here. I encourage you, you know, especially I would encourage you for 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, to read those verses and to read the profound and rich and wonderful footnotes on these verses, which I don't have time to get into them because, you know, these particular verses, if you look at the life study, 2 Samuel 7, Brother Lee gave message after message just on these three verses. So I encourage you to read the footnotes on these verses. Now, in Matthew 22, 41 through 45, uh, just before this, the Pharisees, they questioned the Lord repeatedly, and they asked him hard questions, and he answered them. But then he asked them a question, and his question to them, we can call it the question of questions. He, he asked them this. He said this, he said, what do you think concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's David's son. And then the Lord said to them, he said, how then does David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies underneath your feet. Then the Lord 
asked this. He said, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, if he's the Lord of David, how can he be the son of David? Saints, from that point, the Bible says they did not dare ask him a question ever again because this question determines, actually, how you answer this question determines your eternal destiny. Christ is not just the Lord of David. He's the son of David. He's the Lord of David in his divinity. He's the son of David in his humanity. So as the Lord of David, he actually entered into the lineage, L-I-N-E-A-G-E, into the lineage of David by being begotten in the womb of Mary, who was a direct descendant of David. Uh, he was begotten in her. So the Lord of David was begotten in her to become the son of David. So the Lord of David in his divinity is, is also the son of David in his humanity, which means that he is the unique God-man. He is the one who is God built into man and man built into God. This is absolutely wonderful, and he is the prototype for the mass reproduction of many God-men. That's us. Now let's come to Roman numeral two. God's economy is God becoming a man in the flesh through incarnation, that man might become God in the spirit through transformation for the building of God into man and man into God to gain a corporate God-man. Now we uh, actually were saying this, of course, based on the Bible uh, primarily, but also based on something that Athanasius saw, who was one of the early church fathers. He was a great defender of the faith. Here's every uh, fundamental believer admits that Athanasius was a, great, was a great defender of the Christian faith. Here's what Athanasius said. He was made man, this is a direct quote, he was made man that we might be made God, and here's what else he said. The word was made flesh that we, partaking of his spirit, might be deified, might be deified. Now, we would just say this based on what Athanasius said, based on what the Bible says, this is the principle of God's move on earth. What is God's move on earth? God's move is in man, is in man. God's move is to deify man. Making, God, making man God in life and nature, but of course not in the Godhead. Of course, to say that man becomes God in the Godhead is heretical. But to say, but not to believe that man, that we become God in life and nature is to be in unbelief. We do become God in life and nature because we have God's life. According to 1 John 5, 11 and 12, it says he who has the Son has the life. So we have the life of God, 2 Peter 1, 4, 
says we partake of God's divine nature, so we become exactly the same as God. We have his life and we have his nature, but of course, we don't possess his Godhead and we don't become an object of worship in any way, but we are deified to become exactly the same as he is in life and nature. Okay, now let's go under A to one. One, uh, I'm sorry, let's go to A under two. This says, the most marvelous, excellent, mysterious, and all-inclusive transformations of the eternal and triune God in his becoming a man are God's move in man for the accomplishment of his eternal economy. Then under this, one says, these transformations are the processes through which the triune God passed in his becoming a God-man, bringing divinity into humanity and mingling divinity with humanity as a prototype for the mass reproduction of many God-men. He became the embodiment of the triune God, bringing God to man and making God, I love these next words, he made God contactable. He made God touchable. He made God receivable. He made God experienceable. He made God enterable. And he made God enjoyable. Saints, isn't it wonderful that by God's processes, by him becoming a man, passing through human living, dying an all-inclusive death on the cross, entering into an all-surpassing resurrection to become the life-giving spirit, and dispensing himself into our spirit, he has made God contactable. Saints, we came here to this meeting for one reason, to contact God in our spirit. What an amazing miracle that we can contact God, that we can touch God, receive God, experience God, enter into God, and enjoy God. Now, two says, God speaks of these transformations in Hosea 11, 4, by saying this, I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. The phrase, with cords of a man with bands of love, indicates that God loves us with his divine love, not on the level of divinity, but on the level of humanity, because these are the cords of a man. God's love is divine, but it reaches us in the cords of a man, that is, through Christ's humanity. So the cords, what are the cords? The cords are the transformations. The cords are the processes through which God draws us, including Christ's incarnation, human living, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now, in resurrection, he became the life-giving spirit. In ascension, he became the outpoured spirit. So in resurrection, he became the life-giving spirit, 
to breathe himself into us. In ascension, he became the, out, the, the outpoured spirit to pour himself out upon us to be our clothing, our power from on high. So these are all his processes. These are the cords of a man. So I'll go on. It says, it is by all these steps of Christ in his humanity that God's love and his salvation reaches us. Now B says, apart from Christ, God's everlasting love, his unchanging, subduing love could not be prevailing in relation to us. God's unchanging love is prevailing because it is a love in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. She says, God's everlasting love is always victorious. Eventually, in spite of our failures and mistakes, God's love will gain the victory. You know, saints, I, ne I can never forget being around Brother Lee one time. There were a small group of us brothers with him. And he said to one brother, of course, we didn't know what Brother Lee was saying exactly to that brother, but that brother knew and Brother Lee knew, and I had some realization. Brother Lee just said this to that brother. He said, brother, I want you to realize it is never too late. It's never too late. Now, what I picked up from that was, you know, Brother Ed or any brother, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what mistakes you've made, uh, no matter, you know, how far you've wandered off, like, like the sheep, the one sheep in Luke 15, it's never too late. And I would say, add this, God never gives up on anyone. He didn't give up on you, did he? He didn't give up on me. That's why we're, we're looking at one another right now, because he never gave up on us. And saints, it is never too late for us in God's sight. So, Romans 8 says, in all these things, we more than conquer through him who loved us. And it also says, nothing in this universe can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we'll come to B. B says the transformation of the tripartite man is God's move to deify man, to constitute man with the processed and consummated triune God. In God's appearing to him, Job saw God in order to gain God, to be transformed by God for the purpose of God. You know, saints, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, to see God is to gain God. Because in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 3, it says, whenever the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Then verse 18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding and reflecting the glory of the Lord are being, I'm sorry, beholding and reflecting the glory of, God, of, of the Lord like a mirror. We're, our heart is like a mirror. And like a mirror, 
We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're reflecting the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, even as from the Lord's Spirit. So when we turn our heart to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We see the God of glory. And when we see the God of glory, we actually gain God. So to see the God of glory is to gain God as glory. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. Now under this one says, seeing God issues in the transformation of our being into God's image. Hence, the more we look at him as the consummated spirit in our spirit, the more we receive all his ingredients into our being as the divine element to discharge our old element so that our whole being becomes new. Our Christian life is not a matter of changing outwardly, but of being transformed from within. So saints, the way we can look at God as the consummated spirit today is we look at him in our spirit. According to 1 Peter 3, 4, our spirit is the hidden man of our heart. Saints, our spirit is a man. In Ephesians 3, 16, our spirit is the inner man. In 1 Peter 3, 4, our spirit is the hidden man. The hidden man of what? The hidden man of our heart. That means our heart surrounds our spirit. Our heart, which is mainly composed of our mind, emotion, and will, and also our conscience, which is part of our spirit and part of our heart. But most of our heart surrounds our spirit, so our spirit is the hidden man of our heart. So when we turn our heart to the Lord, we are turning to look at him, turning our heart to look at him in our spirit. And the more we look at him as the consummated spirit in our spirit, the more we receive all of his divine and mystical ingredients into our being for our transformation. We know that as the spirit, according to the type in Exodus 30, 22 through 25, he is the all-inclusive compound spirit, which includes all the elements of his person, his work, his achievements, his attainments, and his obtainments. So we can receive all of those ingredients by gazing upon him. Now let's come to two. Two says we can remain in the daily process of transformation by turning our heart to the Lord so that we can behold and reflect him with an unveiled face. Then the next sentence says an unveiled face is a heart that turns to the Lord. Saints, don't take this for granted. Don't take turning your heart to the Lord for granted. Saints, when you just tell the Lord simply, Lord, I exercise my spirit of faith. That's 2 Corinthians 4.13. Our mingled spirit is a spirit of faith. 
So we can say, Lord, right now, I exercise my spirit of faith to turn my heart to you. I turn my heart to you with all my might, with all my strength. I turn my heart to you to gaze on you. That is a great, great thing. Look under here what happens under two. A says, to turn our heart to the Lord is to love the Lord. The more we love the Lord, the more our heart will be open to the Lord, and he will have a way to spread out from our spirit into all the parts of our heart. Saints, this is why it is vital every day, even throughout the day, to say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Be a Lord Jesus, I love you person. That's the kind of persons we should be. Now look at B, to turn our heart to the Lord, to open our heart to the Lord is the key to our growing in life. We have the key to our growing in life. It's to turn our heart to the Lord. Now let's continue. We can open our heart to the Lord simply by telling the Lord, Oh, Lord, I love you. I want to please you. Saints, make that prayer your prayer. This shouldn't be something merely on, a, on, the, on, our, on the page of this outline. We should say, oh, Lord, I really do love you, Lord. I want to please you. I want to be like Enoch, who, who Enoch is described in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. It says before Enoch's translation, that means before he was raptured, he obtained the testimony that he was well-pleasing to God. Saints, it's a good thing to pray this back to the Lord and tell the Lord, Lord Jesus, before I go to meet you, before you return, I want to obtain the testimony on this earth and in your sight, that I am a person who is well-pleasing to God. C says, as we behold the Lord day after day in all our situations, we will reflect the Lord's glory and be transformed into his image from glory to glory. Now look at D. This gets very practical. D says many Christians are not joyful. That is a statement of fact. To me, that's a tragedy to see a Christian who's not joyful. You know, uh, brothers and sisters, I could never forget um, when, I, when, when I got married. I'm trying to remember if it was my, it was the day before my wedding day. And Ruth and I, uh, her dad was a pastor out in western Kansas, in this small town, just wheat fields everywhere. And, uh, you know, just in the middle of, of, you could say, some people would say nowhere, but I wouldn't say nowhere because the wheat fields were there. They were absolutely beautiful. But uh, Ruth's dad, because he was a pastor, he married us, and we did that in fellowship with the leading brothers in Houston, uh, and, of course, Brother Joe Davis is watching this. He was one of those leading brothers uh, to advise us to let Ruth's dad marry us. So uh, we did that. 
And so I had to go to the courthouse to get some kind of marriage license, I believe. I went to the courthouse. There was a judge there. And I don't know how this happened, but the judge and I began to converse with one another. And then we realized that both of us had been saved by the Lord, that both of us were believing Christians, that both of us were born-again Christians, that both of us loved the Lord. And so I asked him, I said, his name was Gordon. I can still remember his name. I said, Brother Gordon, how did you get saved? Here's what he said. He said, Ed, I came in. It was either Friday night or Saturday night. He said, I came in. He said, I had been partying that night. He said, I came to my apartment. He said, I was so wiped out, I collapsed on my couch. He, no, he said, I turned on the television. I collapsed on my couch. And lo and behold, who was on the television was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was preaching the gospel. And Gordon told me, he said, Ed, I was so wiped out that I could not get up. I did not have the strength to get up and turn the television off. So he said, Ed, you know what happened? Billy Graham gave a gospel message. At the end of his message, he invited people who wanted to receive the Lord to pray with him. So he prayed, and I prayed exactly what he prayed, and I received the Lord. That evening, I knelt down beside that couch and I received the Lord as my life and Savior. Saints, he, he got saved dynamically to such an extent that he became a judge. A judge. I mean, you have to have some proper humanity to be a judge. But saints, I have to tell you, I loved his brother. And every time when, when um, we would have a little break, Ruth and I, you know, a little quote-unquote vacation break or something, Ruth and I would drive up to Kansas to visit her parents, and we would go uh, to her dad's, where her dad would speak in the denominational building, and I saw Gordon there, sitting there, and I looked at him, and he looked so sad to me, and I, I just felt so bad for him. His being sad was not his fault. It was not his fault. His being not joyful was not his fault. It's just that once you become a Christian, I remember when I got saved, uh, you know, you, I won't tell you my testimony, my own testimony, but I got saved in a laundromat. I read, I read a gospel tract in the back of a laundromat. And while my clothes were being washed, I got washed in the blood of Christ. I got washed with the Spirit of Christ. And then I remember asking myself, well, what do I do now? Uh, obviously, I'm a Christian. The, the tract says that I am. The Bible says that I am. But I didn't know how to be a Christian. Well, uh, by the Lord's mercy, I realized, well, if you're a Christian, surely you better read the Bible. So... I remember going back to my apartment. I had a roommate, and I began to read the Bible. And the more I read the Bible, the more I sensed the presence of God. 
You know, when you're a new one, when you're a newborn babe in Christ, the Lord does special things for you. It's just like if you have a new baby. Uh, you do special things for that baby. If that, that baby just says some nonsense syllables, like, you know, if the, if the baby says gaga or, or goo, you just, oh, he's speaking something. That's how it is when new ones give testimonies in the meetings. They could say maybe some unintelligible things. And all the saints would go, amen. But if I said the same thing, nobody would say amen. They would say, Ed, why are you, after so many years you've been a believer, why don't you say something intelligible? Well, my point is, is, is that uh, <laughs> my point in saying this is that the Lord was merciful to me. I became joyful from his presence. But one night, as I was reading the Bible, I would say within the first two weeks after I received the Lord, I got so convicted of my sins. No one told me I was a sinner, but I realized I was a sinner. I realized how sinful I was. I began to weep. I went to the, our bathroom, my roommate and I's bathroom. I turned the faucets on because I didn't want him to hear me weeping. So the faucets won, I was weeping. I was confessing my sins. I kept confessing my sins. The more I confessed, the more I wept. The more I wept, the more I got filled with the Spirit. And the more I got filled with the Spirit, the more I got filled with the Lord as my joy. You know, eventually I could not stop weeping. And eventually I, I said to myself, I said, our water bill is gonna be is, is gonna be too expensive if I keep this water on. So I turned the faucets off, I ran outside, I took a long walk, and I consecrated my whole life to the Lord. I didn't even know that I was supposed to do that, but I just fell in love with the Lord at that point. So I said, Lord, I give my whole life to you. You know, from that point on, I began to be a joyful Christian. But I would say approximately a year after that, Somehow, I won't get into the whole story, I came to my first meeting of the church in Houston. And from that point on, I began to learn how to enjoy the Lord. Saints, don't take this for granted. Saints, the Lord has shown us how to enjoy him. You can call on his name. You can pray, read his word. You can preach the gospel. You can fellowship with the saints. There are so many ways to enjoy the Lord. Saints, every day, give yourself simply to enjoy Christ. But I'll say again, I'll read this point. Many Christians are not joyful because the spirit within them is not joyful. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, don't make the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in your spirit, don't make him unhappy. If you make him unhappy, you will be unhappy. So you need to conduct yourself in way. Listen, if you enjoy the Lord, he will be happy within you. If you live Christ, if you magnify Christ, if you contact Christ, he will be happy within you 
and you will be a joyful Christian. All right, let me read on in, in D after the semicolon. It says, if we do not turn our heart to the Lord, to let the spirit of the Lord spread out of our spirit into our heart, we will feel restrained and depressed. That means we will not feel any freedom. Now remember, verse 16 says, 2 Corinthians 3, whenever the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Then verse 17 says, the Lord, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. So when we turn our heart to the Lord in our spirit, we enjoy the Lord as freedom. We are not bound. We are not oppressed. We are not restricted. We are, we are not depressed anymore. We're full of joy. We don't feel restrained. We feel released. All right, now I've got to go on. If we go to E, E says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Listen to this. If someone says that a meeting is boring, we must realize that it is he himself who is bored within. But when we turn our heart to the Lord, we enjoy the spirit as our freedom. Saints, you know, sometimes the young people can say that they say, oh, this meeting is so boring. I've heard this before. I've done this before. I've been there before. Saints, if you have that attitude, then we should just have a funeral for you. You should be in a coffin. Saints, saints, listen, no meeting should be boring to us. No meeting. You say, well, you say, well, Brother Ed, I've heard you say that before. But that doesn't matter. Maybe you heard me say that before, but maybe, maybe you never really heard the Spirit say that to you before. Maybe you never saw a revelation of that before. Maybe it was just information to you before. Maybe it wasn't revelation to you. Maybe now it becomes your revelation. And when it becomes your revelation, the Spirit becomes your freedom. The Spirit becomes your freedom. So saints, don't ever say, if you, if you feel a meeting is boring, that's an indicator to you, that actually you're boring. Not only are you bored within, you're a boring person. That is an indicator to you that your heart is not turned to the Lord, because if your heart is turned to the Lord, you will enjoy the Spirit as your freedom. Now let me come to F. F says, once the liberating Spirit has the way to spread into all the parts of our heart, Listen to what happens. We are released, transcendent, and free. This freedom is glory, which is the presence of God and the expression of God. We feel noble, honorable, and glorious because we are being transformed into his image. Now, all of these words are, are realized in 2 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, and 18. Saints, when I read this, I composed this. I, I've read this frequently, but it was fresh to me today 
because I prayed it back to the Lord again. I said, Lord, I pray that I would be released. I said, Lord, make me transcendent. Lord, free me from any kind of bondage. Be my glory, Lord. I pray I would enjoy you as the presence of God and that the expression of God would be my expression. And I said, Lord, be my nobility, be my honor, and be my glory. You know, when I just prayed that back to the Lord, I felt immediately that being answered in my being. So again, pray short prayers over these points, and the Lord as the Spirit will guide you into the reality of them. Now let's come to C. C says transformation transfers us from one form, the form of the old man, to another form, the form of the new man. The Lord accomplishes this transformation work by the killing of Christ's death. So when 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12 says, Paul says, always bearing about in the body the putting to death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. When Paul uses this term, the putting to death of Jesus, he is talking about the killing of Jesus. Saints, in the all-inclusive spirit, in the bountiful supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, there is the killing element of the cross. So whenever we truly enjoy the Lord as the spirit, the negative things in our mind, emotion, and will, even in our body, they are killed by the killing power of the cross that is realized in the all-inclusive spirit. Now, one says this, in 2 Corinthians 4.10, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 4.10, Paul says that we are always bearing about in our body the putting to death of Jesus. Putting to death means killing. The death of Christ kills us. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15.31, I, I like this part of the last three words of this verse. Paul says, I die daily. You know, saints, this dear brother whom I love very much, he had a, a frame with a quote in that frame, and the quote says this, just die one day at a time. I really enjoyed that. What that meant was, I die daily. What does it mean to die daily? Of course, Paul, he faced physical death in a daily way. But saints, this also means we have to die to ourselves every day. We die daily, we deny ourselves. We reject ourselves. We deny our, uh, how, how do I say it? We deny our soulish enjoyment so that we can have divine and mystical enjoyment of the triune God. What is greater than enjoying the processed and consummated triune God? Nothing is greater than that. God created our soul, our mind, emotion, and will for enjoyment, but he doesn't want us to enjoy things other than him. He created our mind, emotion, and will so that we would enjoy him. So when we contact him in our spirit, he becomes the enjoyment 
of our mind, emotion, and will. The thoughts of God are infused into our mind to become our thoughts. The feelings of God are infused into our emotions to become our feelings. And the intents of God are infused into our will to become our choices. This is our enjoyment of the triune God. All right, let's now come to two. Two says the death of Christ is in the compound spirit. I pointed this out. Again, this is from the type in Exodus 30, 22 through 25. The spirit is the application of the death of Christ and its effectiveness. And if you've never done this, even if you've done it, I would encourage you, go back to Exodus 30, 22 through 25, pray over those verses, and pray over the footnotes that open up those verses. You know, this compound ointment, which typifies the compound spirit, it's composed of olive oil. Olive oil signifies the spirit of God, but it has other elements added to it. It has myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, and cassia added to it. So, you know, the, we can give a whole conference just on these verses. But I will just say briefly, myrrh signifies the death of Christ. Cinnamon signifies the sweetness and effectiveness of Christ's death. Calamus signifies the precious resurrection of Christ. And cassia signifies the repelling power of Christ's resurrection. So, saints, when we call on the name of the Lord, you know, Song of Songs 1 says, His name is as ointment poured forth. So when we call Lord Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, I need you right now. His name that we call on is as ointment, the compound ointment poured forth into our mind, emotion, and will. And all those elements in the compound spirit, the, the death of Christ, the sweetness and effectiveness of his death, his resurrection and the repelling power of his resurrection are all dispensed into our being. All right, now let's come to three. Three says the Christian life is a life that is all the time under the killing by the compound spirit. This daily killing is carried out by the indwelling spirit. Now listen to this, with the environment as the killing weapon. So you have the indwelling spirit, which contains the killing element of the cross. But the Lord, as the spirit, he also uses the environment as the killing weapon. So the spirit arranges our outward circumstances. And, and we pointed out Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good. Remember the good there Many, regrettably, many believers say the good there means that, oh, no matter what I pass through, everything will turn together for good. In other words, I, I, uh, my car got in an accident. Well, I'll get a brand new car. I had a, a Ford that got in an accident. Now I'm going to have a BMW. So all things work together for good. 
No, that's not what that means. I'm just, that's an extreme example, of course. The good there in verse 28 is spoken of in verse 29. What is the good? The good is that we would be conformed to the image of the firstborn Son of God. And that confirmation, which means we are inwardly shaped according to the image of God's Son, includes transformation. So the good there, all things, that means all persons, all situations, all circumstances, all environments, they all work together for the good of our being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. So let me just expound on this a little bit. We can say the spirit in our spirit is the capital K killer, killing all the negative things in our being, but he needs an instrument. He needs a quote, quote, knife. And that knife is our environment, is our environment to kill us. Okay, now under 4A says, A says what I already pointed out, all persons, all matters, and all things related to us are the means of the Holy Spirit to work good for us so that we can be loaded with good, with the triune God himself. Saint Psalm 68, 19a is a wonderful verse that we can pray in the morning. We, you know, this verse says, Blessed be the Lord who day by day loads us with good. God is our salvation. You know, right after the word good comes the word God. He loads us with good. God is our salvation. What that shows is good is God and God is good. In, in, in the Gospels, the Lord says clearly in Luke 18, 19, he said to one person, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. What does that show? That shows the Lord Jesus is God himself. No one is good except God. So for all things to turn together, for good, and for us to be loaded with good day by day is for us to be loaded with the presence of God himself. Okay, now let's come to D, I'm sorry, B. B says all persons and all situations related to us are arranged by the Spirit of God to match his work within us so that we may be transformed and conform to the image of the firstborn Son of God. D says, transformation is carried out in us as we experience the discipline of the Holy Spirit. Saints, the discipline of the Holy Spirit is what we've been talking about. The Lord uses our environment, all persons, all situations, all circumstances, all 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 kinds of trials and sufferings in order to break our natural man. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we're an absolute person in our natural man, even apart from Christ. Well, the Lord will break that absoluteness, just like he did with Peter. Peter said, if everyone denies you, Lord, I will never deny you. I'm absolute, Lord. Maybe these disciples aren't, but I am. I will never deny you. And the Lord told Peter, Peter, 
before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Well, that happened to Peter. After that, Peter could never trust in his natural absoluteness. He had to take Christ from then on. He had to take Christ as his absoluteness toward God. All right, so the discipline of the Holy Spirit is the tearing down work of the Holy Spirit to break us in our natural man and also to restructure us and rebuild us with the divine trinity and all his riches. This is the discipline of the Holy Spirit. So one and two uh, expound this, the discipline of the Holy Spirit. It says the work of the Spirit within us is to constitute a new being for us, but the work of the Spirit without is to tear down every aspect of our natural being through our environment. Two says, we should cooperate with the inner operating spirit and accept the environment that God has arranged for us. Then finally, Roman numeral three, I'll just read this. Ministry is the issue of revelation plus suffering. What we see is wrought into us through suffering. Hence, what we minister is what we are. Now, we can use the example of a vase to indicate this. If you have a vase and you paint a beautiful picture on that vase, that picture can be likened to the revelation that we receive. Now, if someone is making that vase, he will paint a beautiful picture on that vase, but then he will put that vase into the oven. And by putting that vase into the oven, that picture that he painted on the, on the vase gets burnt into the vase to become a part of the vase. Actually, the picture, the picture is the vase. When you touch, touch the picture now, you touch the vase. So the point is, is that ministry is the, is the issue of revelation. That's the picture plus suffering. That's the oven. Then the revelation becomes part of you. It becomes you. So A says, although the ministers are many, they have only one ministry, the ministry of the new covenant for the accomplishing of God's New Testament economy. Our working together with Christ is to carry out this unique ministry, the ministering of Christ to people for the building up of his body. B says, as a whole, the body has one unique corporate ministry, but because this ministry is the service of the body of Christ, and because the body has many members, all the members have their own ministry for the carrying out of the unique ministry. Now C says, the ministry is for ministering the Christ whom we have experienced, and it is constituted with and produced and formed by the experiences of the riches of Christ gained through sufferings, consuming pressures, and the killing work of the cross. Under C, one says, this is really wonderful, the ministry of the Spirit is for us to arrive at the high peak of the divine revelation by our ministering Christ as the Spirit who gives life. 
Now, saints, we will see in the coming International Elders and Responsible Ones training that there's three aspects of the ministry, which I will record here. These three aspects of the ministry are related to the three aspects of the new revival. For the Lord to bring us into a new revival to turn this age, we need to arrive at the highest peak of the divine revelation. This is the ministry of the Spirit. How can I say this? Because in Revelation 22, 17a, this says the Spirit and the bride say. This means the Spirit has saturated the bride to such an extent that the Spirit and the bride are one entity. The Spirit and the bride have been fully united, mingled, and incorporated together to be one entity. So when they speak, they speak as one person. That means, that means as the bride, we have been fully Christified. That's the high peak of the divine revelation. Now, two says the ministry of righteousness is for us to enter into the God-man living. That's the second aspect of the new revival. We have to, if we corporately enter into the God-man living, this can bring in a new revival that can turn this age. So the ministry of righteousness is for us to enter into the God-man living by our ministering Christ, not only as our objective righteousness, but also as our subjective and lived out righteousness for the genuine expression of Christ. So we have the high peak of the divine revelation. We have the God-man living. The third aspect to bring in a new revival is shepherding according to God. What is that? That is three. That is the ministry of reconciliation. Now let's read this point. Three says the ministry of reconciliation is for us to shepherd people according to God in oneness with Christ in his heavenly ministry of shepherding by our ministering Christ as the word of reconciliation so that we can bring God's people into their spirit as the holy of holies for them to become persons in the spirit. So again, it's by the three aspects of the ministry that a new revival is ushered in to turn this age. This is what 4 says. 4 says, by our fully entering into such a wonderful ministry in its three aspects, the Lord will have a way to bring the churches into a new revival. D says, tribulation is the sweet visitation and incarnation of grace with all the riches of Christ. Grace visits us mainly in the form of tribulation. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 shows us this. Now, one under this says, through tribulations, the killing effect of the cross of Christ on our natural being is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, making the way for the God of resurrection to add himself into us. Two says, tribulation produces endurance, which brings forth the quality of approvedness, an approved quality or attribute resulting from the enduring and experiencing of tribulation and testing. Finally, we come to the last point, E. E says, God poured out himself as love in our hearts 
with the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as the motivating power within us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says the love of Christ constrains us. That means the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ restricts us. The love of Christ limits us. I would even say this. It means the love of Christ propels us. It propels us. So it's the motivating power within us that we may more than conquer in all our tribulations. Therefore, when we endure any kind of tribulation, we are not put to shame, but instead we live Christ for his magnification. This is, as the title said, says, God's intention with Job. This is God's intention with us. And this is to Christify us, to make us his bride, to bring him back so that united, mingled, and incorporated with the process and consummated triune God, together we become the new Jerusalem, the great God-man for the shining out of the glory of the wonderful triune God to the whole universe. Okay, I'll stop here. Saints, I, I apologize, believe it or not. This is not an excuse, but you know, I always try to look at my watch. At one point, my watch actually stopped. So I really, I don't know what time it is. Uh, you know, forgive me for this, but I hope you still stayed with me. Uh, and I encourage you to, to pray over these points with short prayers, and the Lord will bring you into the reality of them this is God's, this was God's intention with Job, and this is God's intention with each one of us for the carrying out of his eternal economy. Okay, I'll stop here. Praise the Lord.